0: Welcome to Make It Simple, where we take complicated issues and with the help of an expert, break them down into ideas we can understand, truths we can apply, and questions worth pondering. I'm your host, Matt Popovitz, and with me is my co-host, Rachel Ryder. Rachel, it's our first episode of this brand new endeavor called Make It Simple. I'm so excited to do this with you.
1: I'm so excited. We have so much good stuff coming, and I'm excited to finally kick this off and get this out there.
0: Yeah, we, we have some big topics planned for this podcast and some really, really incredible guests lined up. And so I guess what we need to start is just kind of telling people a little bit about, about who we are. So my name's Matt. Uh, I'm a pastor in Houston, Texas. Uh, I'm also the founder of something called MPM, where we we try to help people understand uh, big truths, specifically about the Christian faith in ways in which they can grasp and understand them. And this podcast is certainly an, an extension of that. And and Rachel, uh, you, you'll share a little bit little bit about yourself, but the big thing people need to know is like, you're my friend and we've been friends for a really long time and we like talking about yeah. important things together.
1: Yeah, we've been friends for a very long time. And you know, when people ask me what I do, I, I'm a stay-at-home mom, I homeschool, but I I work for MPM, I work with you and, and all those endeavors and I love um, the message and the ministry. And so I was so excited to be able to be a part of this with you.
0: Yeah, because because this podcast really is probably one of the truest expressions of what MPM is all about, which is, mm-hmm. l- like I said, helping take like the big and most important truths and, and make them make them simple and understandable and easily applicable uh, to everyday life. And, and that's what we're going to try and do in this podcast is we're going to talk about big issues like today we're talking about anxiety and we're going to try and help people understand it really at the ground floor, wrestle with it, and we're going to do so with the help of an expert. And So as we talk anxiety today, Rachel, who are we talking to? Who's our first ever guest on Make It Simple?
1: Our first ever guest is Steve Cuss. He's a pastor, but he also wrote a book called "Managing Leadership Anxiety."
0: And guys, um, you know, I I don't, I don't know how often I'm going to just like straight up promote other people's stuff on this podcast, <laughs> but but I, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna start right away by saying uh, this this is a book you need to get and you need to read. So I've read it and then I pass it off to my wife. um, And then we, we, we read it and and worked through it together. Uh, Rachel, I think your husband, Jeremy is reading it, right? Jeremy.
1: Yeah. He's read it. He says that, you know, he loves this book. He keeps it in his office. Um, And so he's a huge fan as well. And and, uh, we're, we're big fans.
0: Yeah. And so, so for me, in my context, in ministry, it's really helpful. For Lisa, my wife, it's been helpful just in, in family and relationships. And like Jeremy works at, works at Google, and he's yeah. managing tons of people, and he's found it helpful. So, so I think chances are, like, if you grab this book, Managing Leadership Anxiety by Steve Cuss, uh, that that you'll find it helpful as well. And, Absolutely. And, yeah, and as Rachel said, you know, Steve is uh, uh, as, as a pastor, but he's an author as well, and he really focuses on helping people deal with anxiety so that they can be um, oh. as innovative and entrepreneurial and as effective in everyday life as possible. He, he launched something called Capable Life, and if you go to CapableLife.me, you can learn more about it. It's an online community that aims to help people function as calm, aware, and present human beings in the workplace and in the home. And as you'll discover in this conversation, Steve is a a wonderful, wonderful guy with some great insights about anxiety and a whole lot of other things. Uh, Rachel, what are you hoping we talk about? What what are you hoping we cover in this conversation with Steve?
1: Yeah, you know, anxiety is one of those things. I think people use it as a buzzword, but I really want to have a definition so that I can understand, like when we talk about anxiety, anxiety. What are we talking about? And then, um, I don't know about you, there's a lot of people in my life that I would say struggle with anxiety and how do I love and support them? And then what do I do with my anxiety? Like, it's just like this monkey that that follows me around and sits on my back all day. What do we do about it?
0: Yeah, Uh, so what I'm hoping for is similar. I'm hoping that that Steve, just from his area of expertise, helps us understand with greater detail, like what anxiety is, Mm -hmm. like where it comes from, and what we can do about it because, you know, we're, all living with it in different ways and, and dealing with it in different degrees. And so I, I want to know more about like, when I feel it, like what, what is it I'm feeling and, and what are the things that trigger it in me and in others? And then what are some, some realistic, reasonable things that I can do or help other people do? To, to deal with it. Now, now one thing I know, uh, having read Steve's book and watched some of his other teachings, I, I, I know that when he talks about anxiety, he, he's typically going to approach it from the perspective of people in leadership. He's often going to talk about it for people in ministry. And the fact that he's talking to me, he's probably, as a pastor, he's probably going to just use me as a test subject and talk a lot about ministry. But but uh, if that happens, uh, I want you, if you're a listener and you're not in ministry or you don't consider yourself a person in leadership, don't tune out because what you're going to find is that Steve's insights, they apply to any workplace. They apply to all relationships. They apply to families. And, and the insights he has about anxiety are as universal as anxiety itself is. You think that's right, Rachel?
1: Absolutely. Just being familiar with him and his work and his book. I think that's absolutely true.
0: Yeah. So, so... Let's not waste any more time. Let's let's dive into our first Get ever Make it. it Simple conversation. Yeah, with Steve Cuss. We're talking anxiety. Steve Cuss, welcome to Make It Simple. I'm so excited to chat with you today. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, it's, it's, uh, it's a pleasure. Uh, you know, uh, I discovered your book uh, a little while ago. My wife and I have been uh, then reading the book together and looking at uh, all your other teachings on anxiety. It's been a, a real gift to, to me and to uh, my ministry and, and honestly to my marriage. Um, and, and I told her I was talking with you today and she was like, oh man, I'm so excited to get to talk to Steve. And in fact, as I say this to you, she is texting me questions. So just a heads up, <laughs> you're also going to get questions, not just from me, uh, but from my wife, Lisa. Uh, That's great. But, but, but let's let's start at like a really basic, like really foundational level. Uh, h- how would you define anxiety? And, and in particular, like maybe it might be helpful for us to understand a difference between like, say, clinical anxiety and common anxiety.
2: Yeah, it's a great question. Actually, I think it's a really important question because there are a lot of definitions for anxiety, and a lot of them are true because there are so many different forms of anxiety. So I, I always want to point out when I'm chatting to people that there are forms of anxiety that are real, that need proper medical and therapeutic treatment, things like post-traumatic stress disorder, grief, um, generalized anxiety disorder. Okay. But, but my area is a clinical term. It's called chronic anxiety clinically. So if people want to Google chronic anxiety, it's a particular form of anxiety. And I call it leadership anxiety because it's the most common form of anxiety that leaders and parents carry or that you carry in your relationships. And, you know, if, if PTSD is based on an actual traumatic event that happened to you, chronic anxiety is based on a false belief or a false need or most commonly assumption, uh, mm-hmm. false assumptions. So I, I get excited as a pastor about chronic anxiety because there's so much intersection with the gospel Um, I'm always careful. You know, there's those churches that teach you never to be anxious. I think that's nonsense. You know, when Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. Actually, he uses that same Greek word anxiety when he says, I am anxious every day for the churches. Mm -hmm. So anxiety is human. It's normal. We should welcome it. At least we should be aware of it so we can then uh, manage it. So I would simply define chronic anxiety or leadership anxiety as the thing that you think you need that you don't really need. Hmm. So, so it's, it's it's not that if I if I experience
0: anxiety I'm somehow bad or broken or something's wrong with me. It's just uh, part of what you're saying It's just part of the human experience, right?
2: Yeah. the The founder of the theory I studied, Murray Bowen, he founded family systems theory. He says to be human is to be anxious. The way. You know you're a human being as if you're anxious. So, you know that's why my book is managing leadership anxiety. Actually, the publisher originally said, "Can, can we make a bigger promise? Can we say like eliminating it?" I was like, "Nope," because <laughs> because we can never eliminate our anxiety. All we can do is is go from it it having us in its death grip to actually managing it. And and I believe uh, followers of Christ, we have this incredible tool of the gospel that can displace our anxiety in, in really profound ways. So, so how
0: do we know we're anxious? Uh, what, what, what are, what are some of the signs? And because my thinking is like that there is anxiety that some of us are experiencing that we don't realize is anxiety. We just, we chalk it up to something else. So how do we know we're anxious?
2: Yeah. Particularly type A leaders, you know, that's how I would categorize myself type A entrepreneurial kind of people like to take a hill. We are often the last ones to know we're anxious. So um, the quickest way to know you're anxious is to ask someone who loves you how they know you're anxious before you know you're anxious. That, that would be the fastest way. Find mm-hmm. somebody that loves you, that you trust and say, how do you know I'm anxious when I don't know I'm anxious? And then the next step is to believe them rather than be combative. <laughs> yeah. um, and then you can do a deeper journey. You can start to notice it in your body. Um, I'm, I'm not really a, a foo-foo kind of guy, but um, I'm hyper aware of my body when my mind starts racing, when my heart starts beating, um, that's, that's a key step to really understand physiologically where anxiety lives in your body. So the old saying is your body never lies to you. It's always telling you the truth. So learning to notice it. And then the deeper level after that is to get into some deeper work of what is it that I'm living for that is killing me. Mm -hmm. So in my life, um, I have all these beliefs in my life that are ridiculous that make me anxious. So I believe that everyone needs to approve of me or even I need to impress people. Uh, I usually operate out of a belief that in order to be helpful, I have to be there when people need me or I have to have the answer. I'll even be in a room where somebody will ask someone else the question, but there's something in me that feels like I must give the answer. Yeah. Now, some of that's ego, but yeah. some of it is a genuine sense of help- helpfulness but it's all driven by anxiety. It's a chronic need. So once you can get down to that level, you can really start to encounter some breakthroughs and and actually put yourself in positions where you intentionally are doing the opposite. So if I typically need to have the answer, I'll go into a meeting. In fact, the last one I did was last night where even though I know the answer, I won't say it. I'll, I'll stay silent. And that's to manage my need to always know or to be seen that way. So that's a bit more deeper level, but those are some yeah. things people can do.
0: In, in your book, you talk about different uh, sources of anxiety. Um, namely, I th- the biggest distinction is between like internal sources of anxiety and, and external sources of anxiety. Yeah. C- can you help us understand the difference between those two?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Anxiety exists in in four spaces. And again, when I say anxiety, I mean, there's chronic anxiety. Um, it, it, it's the It's what's going on in me, It's what's going on between me and the other. And then there's what's going on inside the other. That's the third space. And then what's going on between others. So it's Mm -hmm. in me, between me and another, in the other, between others. So the last one, between others, you walk into a room, there's already a mood in the room. You can feel it. Like you've stepped into an existing anxious situation. Um, So what I train people to do is be attentive to all four spaces Space number three, the anxiety in the other. That's the space we cannot change. Out of all four spaces, we cannot change another person, but we spend so much of our time thinking about what they're thinking. You know, we say things like, why do they do it that way? Or sometimes we say, I wonder what they think about me. That's third space and it's holy ground. So therefore, anxiety is generated inside. We have things in us that make us anxious and anxiety is also coming at us from others because they have things that make them anxious. Mm -hmm. So we're all carrying like an invisible bucket of anxiety and it's spreading between us. We're trying, we're kind of trying to get rid of it all the time. So we're dumping our bucket into other people. So what I train people to do is to look for reactivity. That's kind of how you know you're anxious is Mm -hmm. when you're getting more and more reactive uh last night in in our elder meeting we are currently in a pastoral transition i announced in march that i'll be stepping down this year i'm now doing the work that you and i are chatting about this will be my new full-time vocation and when our elders are several months in we're, we're down to some keen candidates that we're really excited about and i have a great relationship with my elders i i love them i feel loved by them but I actually named to them as we're talking about the candidates preaching style and we're kind of kicking around our candidates. I said to the elders, I'm like, I'm noticing I'm getting more and more anxious and I don't know why. And just naming it to them, I was not accusing anybody. I was not feeling people's anxiety. I think for me, it's like, oh man, this is getting real. 16 years of leading this church and, mm. and it's now getting more real. I think that's what it was. So I named it to the room and that helped me be less anxious. Um Dr. Kurt Thompson says, we name things to tame things. Mm-hmm. So if you can notice it welling up in you, sometimes saying it will, will lower it. But the other skill is notice it coming at you. And the best way to practice is any kind of love relationship, a, a marriage, or if, if you're a child or a parent, mm-hmm. you can practice watching anxiety come at you from your spouse or from your kids or from your parents and and practice not catching it, which is... Much harder than I made it sound
0: mm. so so, would you say that that internal sources of anxiety are kind of like some some triggers that you carry with you into any circumstance um, mm-hmm. that that may be kind of disconnected from the reality that's going on uh, outside of you. but 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 that reality outside of you connects with something that you carry with you and then it stirs up anxiety. Is that am, am I on the right page here or no?
2: Yeah, there's about fifteen sources of anxiety in us that generate anxiety and they're usually based on assumption uh usually based on the story we tell ourselves Mm -hmm. so you know the simple idea if you're sitting at your desk and jim walks by and he gives you a funny look you make meaning out of that look you don't actually know what he meant by it but you've made meaning out of it and that's usually because of the assumptions that you're caring about yourself the world about jim Uh, that's internal sources of anxiety external or relational sources of anxiety. uh, relational habits that generate anxiety. So the easiest way to, to, to see those is to watch any reality show where every reality show is actually breaking the rules that I teach. Because, you know, obviously I'm trying to de-escalate anxiety. Yeah. They're trying to raise the drama intentionally. Yeah, it makes so good you, TV. It makes it makes very compelling. It makes you want to watch more. And what I actually learned that while I was writing the book. My daughter, who at the time was a preteen, she's watching Gilmore Girls. And I'm I'm feeling more and more anxious watching Gilmore. I've got the laptop on my lap. I'm writing my book. And I'm and I'm writing about triangulation and double binds and all of these sources. And I'm like, wait, wait, wait. The, the, that's what's going on on the screen. It's like the writers know the secret to raise the drama. Mm. So relational anxiety are like relational habits that make you anxious. So anytime someone's talking about you behind your back, any... Anytime you're in a triangulated relationship, any anytime somebody has put you in a lose-lose situation, mm-hmm. uh, you, you were saying that, you know, your wife might be, at least I may be texting you questions. You know, she's a pastor's wife, I'm, I'm guessing. Yeah, she yeah Matt. So she's a pastor's wife. So so a relational source of anxiety for her, that's just a guarantee is secondhand criticism. Yeah. That's criticism that hits you that affects her. Mm-hmm. uh, because you get to go in the ring and kind of get the boxing gloves on, but she doesn't get to do that all the time. She doesn't get to fight and it has a real impact on her. So just knowing that secondhand criticism will generate anxiety kind of helps you name it and then manage it some.
0: Yeah. You're, you're, you're spot on because one of the things we'll often talk about is how, you know, I'll come home from, from a, a, a difficult meeting or a difficult interaction. And, and i I'll, I'll, I'll work through it with her and then I'll go back to work and I'll be able to like resolve it. But, but she's constantly left with this lack of resolution yeah. of stuff that comes up. And, and it took me a long time in ministry to realize that she, she never gets to resolve this. She never gets to close the loop with all these people that I have an issue with or who have an issue with me. Right. It's That's just right. always open-ended and unsolved for her. And it really, really builds up and she's kind of helpless. She can't ever do anything about it other than carry the problem that I present to her.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm doing a lot of workshops nowadays on the dynamics of criticism, and we mm-hmm. just focus on the internal inner critic that we all carry. Mm-hmm. And then, like as a pastor, Matt, like how do you tell between uh, help someone with helpful feedback that it might sting, but it's a gift? Then you've got your garden variety critic. They're a reasonable person with a half thought through idea. You know, you've had a lot of those people. Then they're, they're decent people. They just it doesn't occur to them that maybe you and your team have done hundreds of hours of work on this, and so they give you a critical feedback, but then you have the usual suspects, you know, who, no matter what you do, no matter what you say, they're unhappy, but we get into secondhand criticism. We encourage spouses to come because then then couples can talk together about this very dynamic, like the pastors need to debrief, but the impact on the spouse and and the secondhand trauma that can happen. It's a real thing. And 2020, man, last year, definitely heightened all of that.
0: Yeah, it's, yeah it's it's been a it's been an interesting year in ministry just to say the least. Well, well since we're already there, you know the the question that Lisa sent me is is one that uh, that she and I wrestle with a lot. Uh, and 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 the question is this: like, how do we differentiate ourselves from the the people that we're called to serve, and and even like the people we serve alongside, so that it doesn't it doesn't sully our view of the God that we serve. And the calling that we have, um, you know, so much at times of our own identities wrapped up and our own well-being is wrapped up in how what the people are saying about us and what and how the people that are serving with us are doing to the point where it can it can really detract from from the experience of us as followers of Jesus walking into church and, and being able to to worship with joy or, or wanting to be there. Right now, I love my church. I love the place we serve. This is just a common thing in ministry, but that how do I, how do I differentiate between the criticism and then how my colleagues are
2: doing and, and how my own faith is, is affected by it. Yeah. I, I think, I think you, you guys have actually asked one of the most important questions about ministry thriving and my hunch is we, we can't give it the credit it's due in the time we have. So yeah. I'll give some thoughts and I just want to honor the question. Cause I think, I think that is the quest we're all on mm. is to enjoy the God we love while working for him um, because of the residue impact of the people, you know? Right. Like, yeah. so I think it's a lifelong question. I, I, I would, I, I think there are some general rules like, I think the problem we have as pastors is we expect ourselves to be something more than human. So, And and in some church contexts, our congregation expects us to be something other than human. So some of our congregation kind of put us on that spiritual guru stool. Mm -hmm. Others turn us into monsters, like everything we do. And so I think how do you uh, become exactly human-sized and then how do you lead exactly human-sized? And that's the quest I've been on for 16 years as a lead pastor. I, mm-hmm. I came into this church saying, I am human. I'm not super, I'm not a spiritual guru. So I'll often say to my church, like, if, if you get spiritual insights from me when I'm preaching, it's not because I'm closer to Jesus than you are. It's because I was trained and i got really good training i went to bible college and i went to seminary i got seven years full-time of bible theology if i can't give you spiritual insights then shame on me but please don't ever convolute spiritual awakening that you get from preaching with me being some kind of a super spiritual person Hmm. just trying to debunk some of that you know the guru that comes so that helps me and it helps my congregation um and the other thing I think you can do is, obviously, to me, ministry is the chief competitor for my allegiance of where my identity lies. Um, I've never had a job that I've taken this personally before. My performance and my reputation, I take it so personally. So when people leave our church, I always take it personally. Whereas I used to work in the secular workforce you lose a customer, yeah, cost of doing business. Um, so I think ministry is a gift in that it forces us to be rooted and established in Christ. And uh, I think that takes a lot of work mm-hmm. to really practice the presence of Christ because my heart constantly wants my identity to be in my job performance or my opinion polls or whatever that is. Mm -hmm. And the the final thing I I would say is this was a slow lesson for me, but we had a period of five years in our church where we we, we were a small church at the time and we had four young dads die in five years and three out of the four were very dear friends of mine. It was a volunteer worship leader. Then it was the chairman of my elders. And then it was a man in my life group and, Mm -hmm. and they died annually once a year. And so I'm, and, and, two of them, I helped them die because they died slowly. One died of Lou Gehrig's disease and then one died of leukemia. And these were men from 28 to 42 years of age. So these are young men with young kids. And um, I had to learn how to grieve while leading. And I think my tendency was to stuff my own feelings for the sake of others. And it was a slow, painful journey to feel what I felt So i could be more present to others so if if you are hurt by people at your church i i encourage leaders to feel it rather than think you should be over it i I found faster recovery and feeling all the feels rather than thinking oh look at this age and how long i've been leading i shouldn't be hurt anymore no, it hurts. It just criticism always hurts. So I'm going to feel it and move on. So that I don't know if that helped, but yeah. th- those are some things that I, I, it's definitely a posture, I think, that you're yeah. trying to operate from. And I think a key part is letting your congreg like refusing to let your congregation caricature you into a monster or a superhero, mm-hmm. which in the American church, as, as an Aussie, I got to say, it's really disturbing how much the American church kind of needs a, a superhero in the pulpit. Yeah.
0: Well, you know p- part of the you know the question that uh, that I posed has to do with this idea of, of differentiation which is something you you talk about in the book and, and my kind of my kind of own crude definition of it you can tell me if I'm right or wrong is like kind of knowing where where I stop and somebody else begins um, and and uh, that 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 plays out in terms of like identity and responsibility and and you know all, all those things but but I, but I would love for you to, to talk for a bit about differentiation like what it is and and why it's important in kind of managing anxiety?
2: Yeah, uh, it's a great question. Differentiation is the cornerstone of the theory I've been trained in, family systems theory. And, and it's interesting because for, for a cornerstone foundational concept, people really do struggle to understand it because it's so conceptual. Yeah. So yeah, the, uh, I, the way I teach it is differentiation is the ability to notice your own anxiety and manage it so it's not spilling over into others. And at the same time, notice anxiety coming at you so that you don't catch other people's anxiety while staying connected to them. So it's managing yours, not catching theirs, and still staying emotionally connected. That's that's really tricky. It's really hard work. And again, our family relationships are where we do our best practice because we're constantly catching each other's anxiety, getting wrapped up in each other. Not everybody, but the, the majority of leaders I work with, they tend toward enmeshment, so they get wrapped up in other people. Either my well-being is wrapped up in your opinion of me, or you're not doing well. So I'm going to overfunction while you underfunction. So what you're looking for in differentiation is when you're moving to the extremes of enmeshment, which can look like overfunctioning, or it it can you think it's empathy in the church, but it's actually like codependence. Like, if you're not okay with me, then I'm not okay. But then the other extreme is detachment. And uh, it's very common for leaders to get enmeshed with people and then to get fed up and cut them off and swing wildly to detachment. So for me, if someone's not okay with me, it takes work for me to be okay in their presence. Hmm. Uh, And that's differentiation. If they're not okay with me, their anxiety is coming at me, but I'm not going to catch it. And then whatever's making me anxious about my reputation, I'm going to manage it. But I'm going to stay connected to them rather than what often happens as leaders is we try to turn them into monsters. We try to say, we, we label them, we, we talk about, we, we gang up on them with our staff. Oh yeah, that's a difficult person. Then the real sign that you're detached is when you're having an anger fantasy about that person. You're driving home and in your head you're having an argument, you're right, they're wrong. They're apologizing in your fantasy. You're very magnanimously forgiving them because you're the better person, all this nonsense. So differentiation is the difficult middle of staying connected to difficult people without giving into them and without their... Like oftentimes what happens, Matt, is you adopt their assumptions about you, You try to reason with them on their terms. Uh, And so it's the ability to be clear on your vision and your values and what you believe God has called the church to do Mm -hmm. in the face of their assumptions. It's a tricky, tricky thing. It's why we all need a nap. (laughs)
0: <laughs> right. Well, it it is really hard because you know I I you know I fancy myself a pretty um a pretty uh, emotionally uh, intelligent and mature person, but but my goodness, you know, I someone someone gets sideways with me or someone lets me down, like so, someone really disappoints or burns me. It can be really hard for me to figure out how to share space with them or have just like a normal conversation with them. Yeah. Um, it, it can take a lot of time because I'm just seeing everything through the lens of I'm not going to let you let me down again. Or yeah. um, I know what you really think of me. I've heard what you said about me. And, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it's a lot of work just to be in the room with that, with that person. And I know what that is. It's me just taking what they did or how they let me down or what they think of me and just, just owning it as my own. And it's getting in the way, but that's, that's a really hard thing to, to work your way through.
2: It's really hard. I'm always concerned in like brief format podcasts like this, that I'm making it sound easier than it is. (laughs) It's hard fought work. And there, there are some things you can do that you can, you know, if, if someone's let you down, like that's what I heard you say, then you can explore, what is it I believe about being let down? Uh, it's, it's triggering an unspoken value of yours. So you do some work around your values mm-hmm. and it's not about lowering your values. It's about understanding why you're so triggered by them when someone violates your values. Because what's also true is you are surely violating someone else's unspoken values. That's, yeah. that's a common source of anxiety. But there are also things you can do if like I've, I've done, this is more aggressive and it's a bit more down the line, but I've done this where I know someone is two-faced. I hear what they say about me a lot. And then to me, they're kind or they're, they're different. They're Mm chameleon. I'll, I'll say it to them, but I'll, I'll tell them, um, you know, I've heard from a number of people what you say about me when I'm not in the room and it hurts. Mm. Now there's ways you can do it. There's a way you can do it passive aggressively. There's a way you can do it where you're vindictive or there's a way differentiated. If you're differentiated, that statement is a clear invitation to connection. It's not an accusation. It's not a, I've caught you, but it is saying, "I I don't do that to you. I don't speak about you when you're not in the room. I know you do that to me and I want you to know how painful it is. Mm. Now, the the general rule of anxiety is you try to put it back where it belongs on the person generating it. And I think one of the problems in church leadership is we think we're supposed to all be nice, but I don't think so. I I think what we're supposed to be is honest and loving. And that's very different than nice. So I said to one of my usual suspect critics, I'm like, look, when I see you walking toward me Three out of four times, I know you're going to hit me with something. Is that what you intend? Are you aware that that's... And, and he was quite caught off guard that that was his fairly well-earned reputation. He didn't see himself as a constant critic for many of us. But I'm not trying to hit him. I'm just trying to say, this is how I experience you. And I would like a different experience with you. Is that mm-hmm. going to be possible? Um, so I do think church leaders, unfortunately believe that part of the job is being a punching bag. Mm. And then I also think there are certain kinds of congregants that because of their own dysfunction, they believe that you should be a punching bag. And I don't, I think, what if we just all treat each other with respect, like human beings. And when you're not treating me like respect, I'll I'll say it, I'll let you know. Mm. And that really kind of sorts out healthy people versus toxic people pretty quickly.
0: Yeah. Steve, what would you say are some ways to um, to k- kind of quickly diffuse anxiety as it as it emerges in you? I mean we, we talk we've talked a lot about kind of how to do the, the long work of dealing with anxiety, but what about when it when it hits you in the moment, when it hits you in the moment in your family, in the workplace, wherever wherever it finds you? Uh, are, are there are there some things that we could we could, fold into our practice that would help us diffuse it in the moment, or even, I don't know, maybe channel it in a healthy direction.
2: Yeah, for sure. All of these things do take time. There's, there's no, there isn't a quick fix, but in the moment, if you become more aware of your body, your body will tell you when you're anxious. And if you just start, if you just say, like, maybe you're listening to this podcast today and you say, okay, from now on, I'm actually going to start believing my body. That's what I'm going to do in the moment. I'm going to believe my body. So last night at the elders meeting, I can feel it in my body. And I was quite confused for a few minutes. I probably wasn't as engaged in the discussion for about two minutes as I was like, what is going on in me? Why am I, I don't know why I'm anxious right now, but I could feel it. And I believed my body rather than saying, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. I think the second thing is is to name it. If you're in a situation in the moment, especially if you're with reasonable people, mm-hmm. just saying it will make you less anxious. Mm-hmm. Now, let's say you're alone. Let's say for whatever reason, maybe something happened and you can't stop thinking about it. That's a really common thing. You wake up in the middle of the night, you're already thinking about it. Then there are a lot of things that you can do that displace anxiety for a, a little bit of relief. It it won't stop the source, but it will give you some relief. Um, I teach people to do what I call a life-giving list, and it's in the book. And um, see if you can come up with 30 to 50 micro habits that help you connect to the love of God in the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, So a micro habit would be like, in my case, I try to watch a little bit of stand-up comedy every day. Because laughing, you can't be anxious and laughing at the same time. One of them displaces the other. So, so John in in First John he, in First John four he says, "Perfect love casts out fear." Uh, so, so, perfect love displaces fear. So, the life giving list and these micro habits are an intentional way to displace anxiety, to kick it out. And again, it'll come back, but it'll just give you those few minutes of relief. So, for me, watching a bit of stand up comedy. Um, I have uh this may sound funny to you Matt but scratching my dog's floppy ears is on my list I've written it down this is in writing um a longer than usual hug from my wife mm-hmm. oftentimes if if I wake up at 2 or 3 a.m just touching my wife on the leg and and what it is is it's it's an act of worship it's like lord you gave me this woman as a gift and i'm I'm not waking her up i'm not, I'm just it's a physical reminder that God is good to me Mm. because anxiety makes you forget that God is with you. So when you make these micro habits, one piece of chocolate in my mouth, pausing and watching a sunset, you'll be amazed. I did it this morning. I, I played one song on my stereo and just stopped to listen to it. And every time I do it, I'm also saying, God, thank you for the gift of music. Thank you that I'm an emotional being that's moved by music. And so worship displaces anxiety. But what happens is when we're anxious, anxiety actually has a gospel, mat. It actually has a propaganda. Mm -hmm. It tells you it's all on you. You're doomed. It's always going to be this way. So these micro habits, uh, if you've written them down ahead of time, you don't have to think of them in the moment. All you have to remember to do is pull out your list. Mm -hmm. So I teach people when I do workshops, we actually spend time making a life giving list. And it's because in the moment you lose your imagination. You can't think of your dog's floppy ears. But I've been actively practicing a life-giving list for six or seven years now. And I keep adding to it. I've got over 120 items on my list now. Um, and I've now noticed that I'm always, I'm doing six or eight of them a day without even thinking about it. Now it's so, it's so ingrained. Uh, the first time I see my kids every day is a gift from God. Mm-hmm. Like you start, no, all the, like you keep tripping into the goodness of God. So that would be one of the most practical things I'd say is, is believe your body, name it to somebody, and cultivate micro habits, these little 30 second to two minute things you can do. Those are really powerful techniques.
0: And, and, those, and those micro habits that I would, would, would assume then have the, the power over the course of time of kind of retraining you to, to look for kind of the constant evidence
2: of God's goodness to you. Right. So that it's kind of reframes idea. your whole existence, right? That's the idea. It, it's the, it's the simple theology that we cannot be in the grip of anxiety and aware of God's presence at the same time. God's still with us, but our awareness of God goes away. Um, I, I, I tell, um, Denver is the church planting Mecca because we're so unchurched as a city. So people come from all over the country to try to win Denver for Jesus. And a lot of them are amazing people, but a lot of them come from the Bible Belt, and uh, they're not sure how to actually talk to unchurched people. And so once in a while, I'll get a a mailer in my mailbox for a new church plant, and it says um, uh, the name of the church, bringing God to the front range of Colorado, they say. And I think to myself, where do you think God was before you showed up? But what anxiety does is it says, God's not here. And so when we meet with these church planners, we're like, hey, we've got some good news for you. Uh, we actually say this kind of facetiously. We're like, hey, Philip Yancey moved to Denver in 1990s. Can't we all agree that God has been here at least since Philip Yancey showed up? You know? <laughs> so we're like, And what we're trying to say is you're not bringing God anywhere. You are entering the presence of God where God's already at work. So that's another tool when I'm anxious about a meeting, I'll often be saying, okay, God, you're already in that room. You're already doing your work. I, might, I don't have to do anything. I just have to go and attend to you. That's probably the biggest lesson I learned as a yeah. chaplain, is walking into the presence of God and God with me. So the micro habits help me remember God's God's here and God's good. Yeah, it's really powerful.
0: One last question for you, Steve. How, how might we be able to, to best help someone that we love who is... You know, caught up in a moment of, of really feeling anxiety. You know, I, I've discovered. You know, we, as you've said, we 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 all are experiencing anxiety in some way, shape, or form at different moments in life. But over the last year, um, I, I've discovered that there are people that I really care about who who deal with um, some intense anxiety that I that 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 I never noticed before. And and I, I want to be able to to help them and and love them, uh, not just. Over the long term, but but in that moment, I want to be able to help them when they're feeling that. And and I've noticed this in, in in some people that I really care about who, when they're faced with something that they can't control or there's something that they just there's a big unknown out there. That's when anxiety really really manifests itself strongly for them. Uh, is there anything that 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 I and others can keep in mind that we could do to help those who are caught up in anxiety, especially those who are wrestling with fear of the unknown, uncertainty, lack of control?
2: Great question. I think the best thing you can do to help another person is to increase your own capacity to be around an anxious person without catching their anxiety. I I think that's it. So if somebody is constantly anxious, particularly for leaders, we usually at some point get impatient Mm. and we think we're being helpful by telling them to get over it or it's not that bad. So what we do as leaders is we shrink their pain down to a size we can manage and it's condescending to them and it's not helpful. So I think what we can do is increase our capacity to sit with an anxious person without being anxious, without getting wrapped up in their anxiety, without feeling a need to relieve it. And then the second thing is to name what they're feeling. So Because I think what a highly anxious person needs the most is to feel seen. And I think what pastors do frequently is quote scripture. So, and I think that's just a big problem, quite frankly, because because quoting scripture oftentimes is saying, you know what, it's not that bad. Like, it's not as bad as you say it is. But if you can do the counterintuitive move and say, that sounds really scary. Or um, I, I remember I had a lady come in to see me and, you know, I was way out of my league. I, I referred her to a professional, but we met a few times as, as I gained trust. She had OCD. And I didn't know until I met her that um, there's a component of OCD that believes that God is out to doom you. Like, it's not just about locking the door 20 times or thinking you left the oven on. And she had led a promiscuous lifestyle as a teenager. So now that she was in her 30s and married, she had a little seven-year-old girl. She was convinced that God was going to give her girl AIDS. Mm. And she came in to see me. Now that's ridiculous. The idea that God would give her daughter AIDS because she was promiscuous is ridiculous. What too many pastors had told her was, oh, that's crazy. Come on. Mm. And she would then say, I know it's crazy. I can't stop thinking about it. Like, I know it's crazy. You don't have to tell me I'm crazy. I know it. But I was trained in a technique that says, take the problem as seriously or more seriously than the person coming at you. And that rule, take their problem as seriously, that rule not for them. It's for you because you need to make them better for you, not for them. It's a selfish thing. So when you take that problem as seriously, it settles you down. And I remember her coming in and I, I was well-trained in this technique and I said to her, wow, God's God's going to give your daughter AIDS. That's got to be absolutely terrifying. Uh, Do you normally go to this church? I've not seen you here before. No, no, no. I'm too embarrassed to go to my pastor. So I called a strange church. Oh, so you've never been in this building before? I said, yeah, that's right. I've never been here. It must have taken a tremendous amount of courage for you to bring your daughter into my office. And she looked at me. She's like, she's like all excited. Like, Finally, someone understands the torturous life I'm living. And then she was able to let me into her really crazy world. Mm -hmm. All of the ways that she lived her life to mitigate her daughter getting AIDS. And now that that's all out in the open, now we can help her. Now, I gotta Mm -hmm. say, she needed a professional therapist and I I ended up connecting her. But so many times when somebody brings an overwhelming problem to us, we don't realize that what we say is to manage, is because we're anxious. We think we're helping them. So just being present to them and then naming what they feel and inviting them to share more. That's really yeah. the best thing. If your goal is no longer to lower their anxiety, but just to be present to them, God will do amazing things. Yeah. Steve,
0: I, I can't thank you enough for for having this conversation with us. Thank you for, for being with us and talking anxiety on Make It Simple.
2: Oh yeah, Matt. Yep. Great to join you. Thanks for having me on. I hope we can do it again sometime. God bless, man.
0: Rachel, we did it. We had our first ever make it simple conversation. And boy, I think I think it was a really good one.
1: I think it was really good. I got a lot out of it.
0: So yeah, me, me too. And maybe maybe I should apologize to our listener. I feel like I made a bit of it about me, and like I've got my wife even texting in questions, but I I couldn't help myself. Like I like me like everybody else. Even though I, I consider myself to be a you know uh, emotionally intelligent and mature person, I, I deal with a ton of anxiety too, especially related to work. And so I just I couldn't help kind of bringing some of that up when I've got Steve here in this conversation. So uh, I, I found a ton of what he what he said to be really, really helpful. What about you?
1: Oh, absolutely. I don't think it's a problem at all because it, like constantly as he was talking, I would hear, him, and I've, I've worked in ministry before, but that's just not where I am in life now. So when he would say like something church specific or about ministry, I could just substitute in the word parenting or with my spouse or even with my friends, like it's so, um, you know, we use that word universal. It, it applies to all those things and I found it incredibly helpful.
0: All right, so things that stuck out to you, big takeaways for you from this conversation about anxiety with Steve Cuss.
1: You know, I really appreciate when he said to help you self-identify because he kept saying you need to name what's going on. Um, And sometimes that can be very hard. I don't know about for you, but I know for me, like I struggle sometimes to pay attention to what's going on with me. And just saying, you know, ask someone who loves you how do you know when I'm anxious? Yeah. Um, I thought that was really helpful. And then um, to pay attention to what's going in your bo- going on in your body and then believe yeah. it. Like, is, does your body feel hot? Are you feeling tense? Are you feeling, you know, anxious? And then believe yourself with those things instead of trying to reason it away. Yeah. Uh, what about you?
0: No, I really, re- I really resonated with that because I, I, I resonate with an o- another thing you said, which is that you know, kind of Type A leaders often mm-hmm. don't realize until way late in the game that they're anxious, and that's that's very much me. So, like, um, uh, I'm I'm an Enneagram three, and we're going to talk about the Enneagram in later episodes, but like as an Enneagram three, I often don't know what I'm feeling until much much later than everybody else knows mm-hmm. what I'm feeling. I'm really slow to figure that out. Um, Anything from like physical pain to emotional pain. Like it takes me a long time to really, really discern that. And so when he talked about learning to listen to your body, like I don't, I don't, I don't really know how to do that all that well, or really stopping to think like, what am I feeling right now? Like I, I don't often make space to do that because I'm so busy doing things. I don't make time to think about what I'm feeling, but his conversation was, was confirmation to me that I, I. I need to learn how to do those things in order to to grow in managing the anxiety that I do feel not just as a leader but as a husband as a dad and and all those things
1: mm-hmm. you know and um, jumping off that um, not just naming it for yourself and paying attention to it but recognizing it in others and not just feeling like you have to fix it or you have to minimize yeah. it or that anxiety was something you have to move through but um, that you can sit with and when he said you know you need to make the problem a bigger deal than it even is to them. Just not to get rid of the anxiety, but just to show that you are there for them and you see them, Um, that was really helpful.
0: Yeah, just the idea that um, he said something, I think it was that oftentimes when someone brings anxiety to us, we want to try and minimize their anxiety to a size that we can manage. We, we, we are more bothered by how their anxiety makes us feel than how they are bothered and anxious right and right. so and so we need to counteract that by saying you know this is not about me let me just meet them where they are and and if they come in thinking this is the end of the world just kind of meet them in that place and say tell me more about that and just be there with them like the best way to help someone with their anxiety is not to try and solve the problem of their anxiety but to just be there with them in it like that's that's both freeing and empowering for someone mm-hmm. like for me, who I, you know, I, I deal with people who are dealing with stuff all the time. And so just being given permission to not have to solve the problem of someone's anxiety, yeah. but to just sit with them is really empowering and freeing for me.
1: You know, he said, uh, feel the feels. And like, I could put that as a sign, as a big banner in my house. Like, that's what we need to do is like, let everybody just feel their feels instead of move through it. Um, you know, it as you were t- talking it reminded me he he talked a lot about differentiation and i would appreciate if you could just double click on that and maybe like he talked so much about it like like what what are we talking about here when we talk about differentiation
0: well, I, you know, it's 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 a really important concept. It's why I brought it up in the interview. It's a really really important concept for for those who want to, to to grow and how they manage themselves and manage relationships and do so in a really healthy way. Like like uh, a lot of conversation these days that happens around like boundaries is really about differentiation. And so it's worth googling. It's worth reading about on your own. But but kind of the the quick definition that I would give, informed by our conversation with Steve, is. Is being able to stay rooted in your own feelings, in your own emotions, even as someone else brings their anxieties and their emotions to you, so that you're able to be fully present with them, yet not allow what they're feeling to hijack all of your feelings. Um, and he said, "There's, there's, there's, there's two polar opposites that people will will swing toward that are not helpful. So someone will become enmeshed with somebody else's feelings, meaning you come to me feeling anxious, and now all of a sudden I'm anxious too, and let's be anxious together, which which fixes nothing. <laughs> and and then someone on the opposite end, someone comes to you with their anxiety, and you're like, oh, I can't handle that, and so you emotionally, if not physically, completely detach, and you're not present for them, which doesn't help them either, right? right. And so that the, the middle space." which is differentiation staying fully present with someone but not taking personal ownership over their feelings and emotions staying grounded in what, who you are and what you're feeling while staying present with them and helping them and that's that's a hard thing to do which is why most people check out to one of those two extremes sure. but that's that's where health and helpfulness really lies is in is staying in that middle space of differentiation that that's how i think of it
1: no that's really good um so, you know, we've had this conversation. We've sat here with this. Tell me for the first time, how do we make it simple?
0: Yeah. You know, I, I think Steve did a really good job of helping us um, have a very simple yet helpful understanding of differentiation. Um, not differentiation, rather, but anxiety. What, what I would say, um, my take on making this simple would be this. Um, anxiety is simply an aspect of life in a fallen, broken, imperfect world. It's something we simply have to recognize that it exists, and and learn how to manage it. We're never going to solve it or get rid of it completely, um, and and there's freedom and peace that comes with that, right? Knowing you don't have to solve the existence of anxiety in you or others. It's just something we're going to have to deal with. Okay, um, but the way in which we deal with it is really rooted in how God deals with us. You know, the message of Psalm 23 is that we walk through valleys. But God is with us in those valleys. He he doesn't extract us from them all the time. Uh, The promise is that we will go through them, but we will never be alone in them. And so as you deal with your own anxiety, that's a promise to remember. I am not alone in this. And so I can reach up towards God if I'm a person of faith, but also reach out towards others so that, so that both my God and my friends can be with me in this. That's how I deal with this. But then also if someone near me that I love is dealing with anxiety, the best way to deal with their anxiety is to do what God does for you. You don't have to pull them from the valley. That's not your job, but walk with them. Be present with them. Say, I know, and it's hard, and I love you, and I'm here. That's how we deal with it with others. That's how I'd make it simple. Rachel, what do you think? We we do this again, maybe like nine more times. I say, let's do it. Let's do it. Hey uh, this this is a pretty good first episode of make it simple. I, I hope that you enjoyed it. Uh, I hope it didn't make you anxious. Uh, I hope it made you I hope it made you feel uh, enlightened and empowered and 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 feel as though you have a, a better understanding on this important issue. That's what we're here for. Uh, and we hope you'll join us next time. Rachel, thanks for hanging out with me. Thanks for having me. Thanks for helping us make it simple. The show is produced by MPM. Our editor is Marsha Lambeth. Artwork for the show was designed by Brenton Little. And communications is done by Danielle Chisler. Do you have a topic you'd like us to tackle or an expert you'd like us to chat with? Send your ideas to info at mattpopovits.com. That's info at M-A-T-T-P-O-P-O-V-I-T-S dot com. And if you'd like more information about Make It Simple or MPM, just head to mattpopovits.com.